Hi, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. The audio wasn't working. Yeah. Did the uh... perfect. Oh, okay. No. Oh, you are on my screen. Well, I... I'm. I'm. Do you want to do that? On my on my iPhone. Okay. Okay. There we are. Nice. Uh, nice. Uh, yeah. Seeing you in face. I mean, uh, with the seeing you. Uh, so much live here. I really appreciate you. Uh, yeah, coming here, uh, spending your time to chat with me. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out. I uh, I love what you're doing. Thanks. Um, I don't know if you were okay with getting started here. Yeah, I asked you that quote that inspires your work with regarding trauma and resilience. I really like that one uh, that you sent me. Where did uh, if you could just share the quote and uh, and talk about how uh, how you came to that? Um, the quote is "Don't ask for a light load, ask for a strong back." And I found that uh, years back, actually, before I was really intentionally working with trauma work. And um, the I believe it's a Jewish proverb, so it's not credited to one person. But I found over the years that I've worked with people and their bodies that. Um, physical resilience really can be a life changer for people, um, even when they're dealing with um, serious, chronic, potentially life-threatening illness. Feeling resilient in their in in one's body can definitely feed back into the brain and generally impact kind of the way you perceive yourself in the world and the world around you as well. So, it started. I started working with that idea years back, but looking at building physical resilience, not from a point of always pushing oneself past what you think is capable, but also giving giving oneself enough rest and recovery and rejuvenation. So it's that came to me years ago before the trauma work really came into my practice. Yeah, before I forgot to uh, ask you if you could just introduce yourself to the... Uh... The listeners here. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm Jane Clapp. I live in Toronto and I've been running a studio called Urban Fit for about 10 years and it's located in um, an area in Toronto where there's a lot of creatives and academics and a lot of um, forward-thinking people open to trying um, new things and alternative approaches to health. Um, I started teaching um, aerobics High impact aerobics in the early 90s, um, but then did a BCom and, and worked in HR and labor relations for a while, but came back full time to working with people through their bodies about 15 years ago. Um, and I have uh, training in multiple movement modalities and uh, have done a lot of work myself through my own body and my own healing as well. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned uh, hearing you speak, which I think is a great point that you sort of brought up indirectly, is that you know, we often talk about the, uh, the mind-body connection, but there's also the body-mind relationship. Absolutely. Um, I think we've been such a mind-oriented culture that we believe that the mind controls the body. But what I'm interested in exploring based on my area of expertise and the hours and hours that I watch people move is how can we use the body as a tool to impact the brain and impact um, neuroplasticity? And um, also how is the body keeping our, our mind stuck in, um, in, uh, in stories and narratives about ourselves as well? And looking at how our self-identity um, is really tied to the way that we relate to our body as well. Cool. So uh, how did, um, 
like how did you get introduced to this or uh, get involved with incorporating um, the 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 connection between uh, you know physical uh, like um, uh, you know the the work you're doing related to movement and trauma and mental health. I think for most people who become an expert in anything like this and any type of healing work, it starts with yourself. Sure. Um, and my relationship with movement and how it impacted my mind um, started in my teens, really, and using um, exercise as a way to manage anxiety um, way back when. Um, and so it really started with me, but also going through some critical junctures in my life and having to, my body just basically saying no um, to what it might have been doing in the past and really forcing me to explore new ways of, of moving and healing and, and helping myself get through crisis in my life. So it started there, but um, what started really shifting for me is when I opened up my own space and I, I got into a space where um, people felt very safe. It was very quiet. It was one-on-one. -on -one. And I noticed that people needed a lot and really were craving a space to just um, be and to be seen. And, um, and although I'm not doing psychotherapy, people's bodies were crying for acknowledgement of, of the fatigue that they were experiencing of the, um, the pain that they were holding physically. And so I started exploring that with people and giving them the space to be able to feel somatically what was happening and how their emotions were finding a place in their body. Yeah, I mean, this whole movement thing has really been exploding with uh, there's that you know, movement uh, group on Facebook and that guy, um, Ido Portal, you know him? Yes, yeah, yeah. I don't know him personally. Right, you know um, of him, obviously. Yeah, uh, he, I'm not sure what he's doing now in terms of bringing in trauma or um, the emotional aspect of movement. Yeah, I don't see him doing much in that regard, but I'm just saying people uh, across the, the globe, I mean, are really interested in this whole movement thing. But uh, I think we're trying to look at um, bo the body in a more intelligent way and movement in a more intelligent way. Instead of thinking you put in 60 minutes of exercise input into the body and, uh, five times a week and that I will be healthy. It doesn't work like that. Right. And, and there has to be an, intelligent brought, an intelligence brought to the way that we're working with our bodies. And I think people are craving, um, want to become their own wellness experts and they're asking for more. That's true, and I, I think one of the things about it too is related more to this movement practice is it's really uh, it's much more beneficial for the brain than just your traditional, you know, jogging or uh, walking. There's more of these complex movement patterns. I, I mean, I've studied different things related to the brain, but just sort of uh, from my own sort of anecdote, I mean, just thinking about it just makes sense that learning more complex movement patterns is going to help to create new synapses and new connections in the brain. Well, if you're looking at people with a history of trauma or even mental health, general mental health issues, it can really impact the sensory motor part of the brain. So, and and um, it can impact our ability to really be in the present moment. So, movement 
that you apply a sense of mindfulness and present moment awareness to can really help people learn how to um, get out of stories that they keep replaying in their minds or, you know, how they talk about how we talk about anxiety being mental time travel. Um, I personally don't think that the benefits of, of movement are limited to one type of movement. I believe that you can bring it into any type of movement that you love to do, even if it's running and it's a repetitive movement, it can become a mindful, uh, mindfulness exercise as well. It's not limited to one type of thing at all. No, that's a good point, but, but I, I, I mean, I think there's, I mean, going back, there's benefit, there's uh, positives and negatives for each type of uh, practice, but uh, related to running or something that's really repetitive, I think actually can be very, you know, very healing for trauma. There's something about the brain and with trauma, like dance or anything that's very repetitive helps to get to, helps you can, can help enable you to get into more of a flow state. Well, for example, can be a way for people to feel like they're completing a trauma. So if people were stuck in a state of immobilization, for example, um, um, in child abuse or an assault of any sort where you had to, where the smartest thing was to stay still. Yeah. and to inhibit the impulse to move. What that does is it actually freezes um, energy into the psoas muscle, and that's the deepest lumbar stabilizer. Right. So running um, and engaging that, that fight-or-flight response and that ability to remind yourself that you can escape from a tiger, for example, can be a really healing thing to do for people. My biggest question when I talk to people is, are you using your movement or exercise to tune in or tune out? Are you trying to numb out by pushing your body? Are you using it as an exercise to tune into your, to your physiology and improve and strengthen your interoception? One of the things that you, I saw you brought up in one of your uh, posts, which is, I think is a good point to bring awareness to, is that like some people... Uh, can use exercise in a dangerous way. And I feel that's not talked about enough, really, that it's always exercise is good, that, but it can be dangerous. And uh, especially if you're using it to, um, to, uh, you know, to relieve trauma or escape, uh, like you said, to tune out. So can you speak a little bit to that, to that, the danger of, of too sure. much? Um, I, in my personal experience, um, when I first started Doing, I did high impact aerobics and it was exhilarating, it lit me up, it made me feel alive and it dissipated my anxiety. Sometimes those same things that might have helped us at one point can start to become um, a way that we will create pain and physical discomfort in our body, not dissimilar to the act of, say, cutting. Right, that's a great point. Um, or not dissimilar to the act of having hunger pangs, right? Limiting the amount that you eat so that you can feel anything but your emotional pain. So exercise can become an escape if we're trying to recreate feelings of pain and discomfort um, so, that we can, uh, so that it becomes a coping mechanism for not actually feeling our real pain. No, and I, and I think that's a great point, and I was actually thinking the same thing about the cutting, but, but, but if we looked at somebody who over-exercises, we, would, we, wouldn't, we, would, um, you know, we wouldn't look at them the same way as somebody who's cutting, but often they're trying to, um, they're just using a different means, but they're trying to achieve the same out end in a lot of ways. 
there's actually a term in the DSM, and I'm not pro DSM per se, yeah. but called hypergymnasia, and it's compulsive exercise often combined with um, hyper control over diet. Um, and really, is that so, a new uh, is that a new diagnosis? I wasn't aware of that. I think I'm um, I'm not sure how new it is, but um, I have uh, I see a, a psychiatrist as a client who I get to bounce things off of. So. She just shared that with me about a year ago, that that's actually a diagnosis in the DSM. And it's a form of an eating disorder, basically. Um, but the tricky part is, uh, is that when we exercise and we look thin, we often get praised for that. Right. And it's considered a sign of, uh, of inner strength and self-control and discipline. So it's very easy for, it, for that to slip by um, as uh, actually something that needs to be addressed. And um, most people I see who are in that state of compulsive exercise, I really encourage them to bring it up with, if they're in therapy with their psychotherapist and bring it into the discussion. Um, because it is another avoidance mechanism, it's a coping mechanism um, that over time might have worked, as in my, in my case, it worked for a while, but then it became something that only put fire onto my my anxiety. It actually taxed my physiology so much that um, it it started to wear my body down. Well, how did you get like how long have you been interested in sort of studying the uh, you know the brain and the nervous system and all that? Uh, when did you start studying all that stuff? Well, I started studying, I started noticing things more acutely when I worked with people who were in cancer treatment and who were coming out of cancer treatment. And what I noticed is there was a window um, after people were cancer free, um, whatever that means, where some people bounced back and started really participating in life again and moved past the trauma of the illness and some people got became really stuck and what I started noticing is uh, particularly with their scar tissue and their fascia if they had a mastectomy or lumpectomy that there was a correlation between the um, the fascia in someone's body and how quickly they were able to start um, moving past the trauma and engaging in life and and, and and integrating that illness into who they were without it becoming who they were. And I started sort of noticing the relationship between people and people's emotional state and their fascial state and, and what it felt like to stretch them. And that was, gosh, at least um, I would say six or seven years ago after I started doing more hands-on um, fascial stretch therapy with people. I started noticing their fascial behavior quite closely tied to the way that they kind of uh, were out in the world and the way they handled their emotions. But how, uh, like, do you have any particular, um, what are your approaches to addressing sort of uh, like mental health issues related towards your uh, uh, movement stuff? I, the first place I tend to look is, um, the state or their fascial system. So um, if people tend to be very body armored and very held, their, their mobility is going to be limited. And what I'm going to try to do is help them 
um, start to feel safe in their body through activities and movements that will downregulate that that held tension in their body. And uh, hypermobile people, what I'll try to do is help build up their sense of a container through through strength work. But one of the first places I look at is trying to um, assess whether or not people have locked uh, trauma and tension in their body through some key areas. Um, one would be uh, the glutes, if they if they clench their, their glutes, if their feet are clenched, if their hands are clenched, jaw, and also particularly across these muscles. So um, for people who are body armored, I would try to start relieving the tension in the muscles, the, the muscles that tend to activate in fight, flight, and the early stages of freeze, um, and start trying to work on that. But um, also with anybody, I, I'm I'm most interested in getting them to notice their responses to to movement and insecurity and instability um, when they're doing balance work and see what the impact is on their breath. And how people breathe will tell me a lot about their history and how their where their body is at uh, in in nervous system regulation or dysregulation. Uh, here's an interesting question. Um for you is that uh, you, you find any relationship between uh, people taking uh, uh, psychiatric medications and their uh, movement abilities? Um, most people I see their psychiatric medication is uh, anxiety, depression, or bipolar. So that, that limits my experience. I, I right. haven't really seen a lot of people. Yeah, the connection seems to be a little Hello? choppy. Oh, I can... um, yeah, so what I was talking about was interoception. Um, it's really a measure of our ability to stay in the body, right? So some people who think because they're very good at movement, like I find some dancers who are more performers have high levels of proprioception but lower levels of interoception because they were taught to tune out of their physical pain in order to, you know, the show must go on sort of thing, right? And that can be, the show must go on thing is a lot of how we're living today. We have to ignore the signals from our body in order to keep going and push past our, our energy levels. And so exercise traditionally has been a way to push ourselves, not necessarily listen to our bodies. And I think as long as people notice whether or not they can stay present in their body and whether or not their breath becomes really labored and dysregulated and panicked, then, then the type of exercise input people are, or movement input people are doing is, tends to be more adaptive. Yeah? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think, you know, like you said, if you really have more awareness of your body, this interoception, you'll be more like, less likely to be injured, I would think. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you're not blocking pain out. And so low levels of interoception can also be linked to people who dissociate emotionally as well, because the emotional pain they don't want to feel in their body as well. So we have to gradually increase interoception for people with trauma because the trauma is in the body. The memory of the trauma often gets stored in the body. So it's not like you want people to all of a sudden feel everything in their body all at once. And so I use complicated movement, um, balance tools, things that feel like more like a game with the body to help people feel something other than pain and discomfort in their body.
But, but then again, I mean, I think you spoke to this a little bit, but then you have people that are in chronic pain and then the body is sort of, sort of this idea that pain is a, is a signal that there's tissue damage. But then once the pain is very problematic, once this pain's lingering after you're recovered from your injury or the, the tissue damage isn't acute anymore. Right. Well, what that really tells me is that the whole fascial system is in a state of hypervigilance. The pain receptors are very upregulated and they're doing their job to keep you safe. So I see people with Parkinson's, people with chronic pain that isn't going to go away. Yeah. It's not like it's an injury. It's not like the pain is going to go away. So what I try to do is create feelings of pleasure and joy so that they want to be present in their body, even if just for a short window. I have tools that will help them, like even physical touch sometimes down regulates the pain receptors and that's why not being a psychotherapist yeah it's helpful <laughs> it's helpful yeah um so for those folks i try to create experiences for them that they actually can tell that their body is more than the pain um i have lots of toys and tools that i bring into play self-massage tools i have a, a vibrating massage tool i do a lot of oscillation with the body which gets back to the kind of the pendulation that peter levine talks about um i i try to create opportunities where people actually want to be in their body and they can see that the pain is just part of their experience but also feel how how much their body is still working for them despite the pain and over time, if people have enough of those experiences, their pain can be integrated into the sense of their body, but the pain isn't their body. Have you, um, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of uh, Gabor Mate. Have you ever connected with him? I've seen um, three of his lectures. Yeah. Um, I gobble up any opportunity to read his work and um, I, I couldn't respect his work or him more. He's a he. The way that he even handles question and answer periods is so wise. Um, and yeah, exactly. Like bang on with his work. I mean, when the body says no, it's a signal that we need to listen to our bodies. And um, I had a life-threatening autoimmune condition in 1999, which was idiopathic. It didn't. It wasn't really clear why I had it, but my body completely turned on itself. And I'd spent so many years just trying to dissociate from my personal pain um, that my body was just like, no. <laughs> it was. It was really interesting. So yeah, that's one of the reasons I connect so much with his work as well. Yeah, there was someone recently that wrote a book. Um, this interesting. Um... Yeah, this interesting book on that subject. I just can't. It's on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of her name. But uh, have you? Uh, what did you say? Are you talking about Norman Deutsch? No, there's just there's this woman who talked about the connection between uh, traumas and uh, the autobiographical experiences and, and health and, and autoimmune diseases and all that stuff. But yeah, but um, for sure. But have you? Are you familiar with the ACE study? No, tell me. That's the one I tell everybody who's working in trauma. I mean, I, mean, I feel like I have to tell it to everybody that this, this, this study that was done in the late 1990s uh, by these two family doctors, well, they initially were uh, uh, operating an obesity clinic mm -hmm. uh, in, in San Diego, California. And they found that a lot of these uh, their people that couldn't um, keep the weight off, women, were uh, uh, survivors of sexual abuse. Mm. And then based on that information, they decided to, um, to um, 
to survey 17,000 people and ask them, um, they got a detailed health, physical health history, but then they asked them before the age of 18, did they experience uh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, um, physical abuse? And each of these uh, variables they gave a number to. And all the other ones were, was one of their parents had a mental health uh, illness, was a parent or family member addiction issue, domestic violence, or was one of their parents incarcerated? I know, you're talking about the adverse childhood yes. experience. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm pretty high on that. Yeah. <laughs> you're high on the A score? Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm fairly high on that, yeah. for sure. I, I think it's, I think the tricky part is building self-awareness for my clients um, about the levels of stress or trauma that they're coming in with if all they hear is, I'm really, tra- I have a history of trauma and it's really serious, but attached to it isn't some type of remedy, solution, or hope, then that extra knowledge is, is not really helpful at all. Right. Well, well, the thing I like about this is it just makes it the trauma real, that it's not just something that you, uh, it's all in your head and you just get over that doesn't have real consequences that are measurable. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure you've worked with lots of people who, um, when they talk about trauma, are actually quite, oh, almost too calm about it, right? It's almost like um, they they haven't been able to acknowledge the severity of the trauma. And I, I find that too with physical illness as well. Sometimes people can't really absorb how intense their trauma was until there's some distance and time between it. Or when people start to feel more physically resilient, you know, just build, just like a psychotherapist would build an emotional container for people to be able to experience the full spectrum of their emotions. That's what I'm trying to do with people's bodies. Um, I'm trying to help them build a physical container. They can actually experience some of their pain or struggles or emotions or day to day life. Oh, you cut out. Uh, no, I'm here. Oh, good. Uh, uh, well, yeah, that's pretty. Uh, well, thanks for, for sharing all this with me today. Uh, any, uh, any other thoughts that you wanted to impart? Um, just that it's just such a broad, broad topic that, um, and there's so much work and research coming out right now. And there's so many people doing amazing things that I feel like we're just really touching on the, the tip of the iceberg of this work. And, um, sometimes I have a hard time distilling what I do down with, with my clients in a really, (laughs) um, concise way, but, um, I really appreciate you having me on and, and uh, exploring this work with me. Yeah, any, um, well, what's your, I guess I would ask you this, what's your sort of favorite um, kind of modality to work with people uh, in this capacity? Oh, I don't have a favorite. Yeah. I have a massive toolkit. I, yeah, I, I see I see all the, all the different toys you have. <laughs> yeah, I know, thing. I'm totally a toy addict. Yeah. Um, I would say... Hmm. I don't have one, but I do find that what I'm looking for first is a change in people's breath without them directly manipulating the breath. That'll tell me if we're on the right track. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Um, I don't coach breath. What I do is I'll work around it and cue people to just breathe calmly. And then what I'm looking for is a short, shorter inhale, longer exhale, and then a little pause at the end. And I know if I've been affected in, effective in regulating their nervous system, if they get there themselves. And that's what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for um, the body's ability to regulate itself without it being a mind control matter necessarily. I, I know one of the things I, I want to just mention before we go is uh, you said you, you uh, work with that psychiatrist. I was wondering if you ever thought about this. I thought about this years ago. I remember a psychiatrist mentioned it to me. I think it's very interesting that there's that all the drugs that we give uh, psychiatric medications for anxiety are all uh, all in all work on the sympathetic nervous system. There's no, there's no drug that really activates the parasympathetic response. Well, I would argue that medicating most people who have nervous system dysregulation actually can vacillate between parasympathetic overactivation of the vagus nerve. Well, that's they, true, right. Um, and I would argue that it's, they're not just locked in fight or flight. In fact, it, it, there can be a, a over shutdown or over activation. So um, there are interventions that are meant to stimulate the vagus nerve that are coming out. There's a new tool that um, will manipulate through the ear. Um, I'm not really happy how they're marketing it because it's marketed as an escape. I think they're based in, in Florida, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I just, uh, funny you mentioned that when you were saying that there's, um, I don't know if you're talking about this. There's one that is based in Florida that's actually a headphones. I don't know if that's yeah, the one. That's yeah, that's a new one coming yeah. up. But I'm actually really not happy. I'm really kind of upset with the way they're marketing it because it could be an amazing healing tool. Yeah, but the, I, they're marketing them almost like a drug. Yeah, like a, like a, you're just yeah. getting a dopamine high with it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's dangerous to think that people need to just calm their nervous system down. It's not regulating. It's not recognizing nervous system dysregulation as being um, hypo or hyper aroused, right? Well, it's like a skill. It's really you need to be able to uh, be able to move between the two, uh, move between your sympathetic and parasympathetic. Exactly, and it's about expanding the window of tolerance so that there isn't an over. You stay within the range of it being like an accurate response to what is happening in the present moment, right? But have you have you tried any of those kinds of uh, tools yourself, like the vagus nerve stuff? I have tools that'll help activate the vagus nerve, but I think we have to be very careful about overactivation of the vagus nerve because there's the prim primitive branch of the vagus nerve that is really tied to the reptilian response. So we don't want to overactivate the vagus nerve. So I'm I'm careful to try to directly manipulate the vagus nerve unless it's something that the body really is showing me that it wants to do. For example, every time you breathe diaphragmatically, you stimulate the vagus nerve. Right. But if people's safety out in the world is based on staying in that state of hyperarousal, then, and that's what's keeping them feeling safe, why do I want to take away that coping, that defense mechanism until they feel safe enough like sort of Judith Herman's stages of trauma, right? Therapy, trauma resolution. Why do I want to move them into stage two until they feel safe enough to let down their guard? 
So activating the vagus nerve before people have other coping mechanisms to make them feel safe in the world, including a sense of their physical container, is, is not a great idea, in my opinion. Have you ever done, used any uh, heart rate variability in your work? Yeah, I, I use a biofeedback tool. Um, and I use a polar um, heart rate monitor. I don't believe that the Apple Watches or Fitbits can accurately measure heart rate variability. Right. Um, the polar monitor or the, the ones you wear under your chest is, are the better ones generally. Um, I'm careful if I know people are very dysregulated or, I, um, or have really low heart rate variability. I'm not going to give them that information Unless I feel like we can see some improvement, like people who are having an injury and all they can hear is how fast their heart rate's going, um, I'm not going to know to get them to pay attention to their breath and their heart rate at that point, right? So I find biofeedback tools can be really helpful, but I have you have to be very um, aware of why you're you're giving people that information and what you can do with it immediately after that they get that information. What about any neurofeedback? Have you ever incorporated that? Um, I haven't incorporated neurofeedback. Most neurofeedback, as I understand it, um, can't be done when people are moving. That's true. And so um, I have the Muse. It's a tool that was created in Canada and Toronto. Um, have to be sitting completely. Well. So I'm more based in body-based movement work. So neurofeedback would could be something I would suggest, but it wasn't wouldn't necessarily be part of my practice. Yeah, but I do have to run now. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. I totally appreciate it. Hope yeah. you got some good stuff there. Yeah, I just have to play around with it. Uh, that'd be fine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Sorry about the connection. Okay, bye. bye.